Welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. For this live session, I was joined by David Peterson, pre-sales engineer at Sensei, to discuss how to leverage value from existing data. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, good afternoon or good morning. Wherever you are in the world, I know it's morning uh, where my guest today, David, is. Um, welcome to this episode of Trend Detection Live. Um, really excited to have one, Thank you. Uh, one of my American colleagues on today, David Peterson. Um, and we're talking today about how to leverage existing data for predictive maintenance, which I know David's recently done a presentation with a, a mining sort of group. And you'll, I won't sort of go into David's background. I'll let him introduce himself. But um, he's done a really interesting presentation recently about that. So I thought that was worth exploring further and maybe I'm opening up to a wider audience too. So um, without further ado, oh, actually before, I always forget this, but we do have a comments feature, so a chat feature. So if you do have any questions at any point, please put them in the chat and I'll feed them back to David as we go. We won't do a Q&A or anything like that at the end. We'll just feed them as we go. So without further ado, I'll pass over to David just to introduce himself. David. Thank you, Niall. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm David Peterson. <clears throat> I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a background in the last 30 years of heavy equipment, primarily with uh, groups such as, as he mentioned, mining and metals, as well as aerospace. Um, I've spent a number of years overseas, so I do speak, read, and write Japanese. So I, I kind of brought in a little bit of everything together uh, in this predictive maintenance field, and, um, and I'm currently here in the Rocky Mountains. Awesome. You can't quite see it, but there is a lovely view behind um, David. You showed me just before. It is a lovely view. But, um, but we're not here to talk about the mountains behind you, David. But <laughs> we're here to talk about data, which I know is something we talk a lot about on the podcast and at Sensei as a whole, because we know how important it is, or we know how important it is. But I guess my first question is actually how, from your point of view, how important is data to a successful predictive maintenance project? Because you're right there in the woods. And it's absolutely vital. Yeah, it, 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 it's absolutely vital. You can't do predictive maintenance without having good quality data. But I want to point out that you actually need the right type of data. We like to bring in data from different sources, such as condition monitoring. Um, the, the, I want the sensors from the machine. I want the um, features that come off the machines. I also want operational data. Like, for instance, if you're changing, <clears throat> if you change uh, product lines or something of that nature, I want to know about that. In addition to that, uh, to run a predictive maintenance pr deployment, we've absolutely got to have some sort of maintenance data and feedback in terms of what is relevant and what isn't. And in terms, yeah, and it, I mean that's that's a lot of different data sources. I mean, generally, do you do you, when you talk to a new, say, prospect or customer, do you, do you find that they have that data readily available, or is it <laughs> is it a case of bits of some and not a lot of the other kind of thing? Right. Well, more recently, yes, more recently than in times past, there's kind of a mad rush to get in, uh, in on the uh, digital transformation bandwagon. Uh, so customers have a lot of data. That doesn't mean that they necessarily necessarily know what it does or why it's important. Um, if I was to give a guess, I'd say 80% of the data that is available isn't looked at. And even if it is looked at, they don't really know how to use that to their advantage in many cases. 
I mean, that that's definitely what I've seen. I think I've mentioned it on a few episodes at events. I was at an event in Munich earlier this year, and I had that exact speaking to people. It was amazing how, you know, oh, we've got data here, over here, you know, in all these different systems, but we just don't know how right. to how to bring it together to derive value. So I think I think you're right. There's, de- there's been a shift, and I guess it's to do with Industry 4.0, which, or a lot of it's down to that. And I guess people or companies starting to embrace that technology, but what what sort of role does that industry 4.0 play in sort of data collection and that side of things? Oh, that's a great question. Um, as I said, there's a mad rush to get on the board. Everyone feels like they're going to be left behind. Initially, the um, the industry 4.0 was about improving uh, processes, quality, things of that nature. But increasingly, we're seeing more of that um, in terms of it's helping people be more efficient, meaning they're saving money. And so there's kind of been a shift in what uh, Industry 4.0 represents to companies. Um, one of the other uh, factors is, is, is sometimes a company will rush out and they'll buy all sorts of sensors. They want to produce data, but they, they don't really understand. They need to clearly define what the problem areas are, where, where are their areas of concern, and how is technology going to help you address those problems in those areas specifically. And so I think that uh, Industry 4.0 plays a significant role in terms of helping people identify where the, the bottlenecks are, where the, um, the problem areas are, because many times we've, we've learned how to, to adapt to problems and we don't really view them as problems as much as we used to. So, uh, so how, how often, um, just... Yeah, so I mean, how often? I mean, within an organisation, in terms of sort of data collection, there's, I mean, I guess what we talk about here a lot is data being in siloed. Because you talked about uh, before about all those different types of data, but in some ways they represent different areas of the business. So how hard is it to bring those data sources together? Because I guess it's like a, it's a company culture thing as much as a data, you know, integrating data sources thing. Absolutely, absolutely. What we find is that a lot of people have data silos and those that can be either um, organizationally dis- caused or it could be um, techni- technically defined. In other words, we may have some older machines that are producing uh, data that goes into a SCADA or SCADA, depending on how where you're from. <laughs> goes into a SCADA a scenario, some will go into a PLCs. Um, <clears throat> we have uh, edge devices that are working on an entirely different network. And so data silos becomes a very real challenge where um, it's hard to identify where a problem is if you can't actually see it or you can't actually gain access to the information. So that is a, an absolute problem with the with uh, the modern technology, trying to mesh the various technologies together. And it could be anything from a, a customer historian, or maybe they have a a, um, a, a, a cloud storage system. We look at their um, <clears throat> and have their their storage systems, or or maybe their CMMSs. Um, wherever the information is coming from to remove those barriers is one of the things that we really try to focus on. And I guess in general is, well, let's say a tool like Sensei, is it able to work off a small amount of data or is there a lot of work required to say, fill in some of those architectural gaps, let's say like installing um, sensors and um, Um, SCADA systems and things like that. Okay. Yeah, we take, a, <clears throat> we take a different approach than many other uh, competitors in the space. We like to use data as it come, becomes available. I don't necessarily have to have a, a long history of data. I don't have to 
um, go out and spend eight or nine months having data scientists create specific models, um, primarily because the models aren't, aren't all that accurate in a lot of situations. For instance, you mentioned that I just uh, addressed a mining company um, <clears throat> or a mining organization. Let's say you have two identical machines, completely identical, maybe a vertical shaft impact crusher. One of them is bringing in two inch minus rock. One of them is bringing in, uh, you know, three inch minus uh, stock as well. One of them is producing something that is uh, very high in, say, maybe a kaolin clay and it's soft. Another one might be have 50% plus silica content that's very abrasive. So those exact same machines are producing very different results and they're producing very different maintenance needs. And so to go spend nine months and a lot of money to create a model for that type of an application just doesn't make sense. So what we like to do <clears throat> is we bring the, the um, data in from the sensors as it happens. In fact, um, all I need is between two to five days per regime in order to um, create a good baseline working model from a, a, a machine state, constant machine state, and I can detect de uh, deviations from that point forward. So uh, a lot of that information, a lot of the, uh, the data that we collect is specific to the, not only to the asset and to the, what the machine is, but also to the specifics of the use case that that machine is working in. Absolutely. And, and a lot of what we've spoken about to this point is about companies that have data and are collecting data, but there's obviously still companies out there who may not necessarily be starting on that journey. So, um, I mean, I guess we've talked a little bit about it, but what are the benefits of using existing data versus starting completely from scratch? And how would you start? What would you oh, recommend? Great question. Sort of the, I was just going to say, and also sort of second part is um, if you do, if you are starting from scratch, like how do you, how would you get started? What's the recommended, is there a recommended sort of process to go through to start collecting data? I think there's a lot more data out there than, than people realize. Most of your OEM equipment comes with some type of data, whether that's temperature, pressure, torque, um, sometimes even vibration. Um, a lot of data is already onboarded onto the OEM equipment. It's just simply a matter of understanding what's available there. If you can, if you can extract the data and understand what's going on with the particular asset without having to add additional data sensing devices, then you economically, you've come out way far ahead. I mean, we've seen, we've seen companies go out there and spend between 200 and $500,000 just on adding say vibration sensors when they could solve a problem just on using a pressure differential. Case in point, like, like for instance, we might have a rege regenerative thermal oxidizer, RTO. And it, it brings in all the, the toxic gases, it brings it, throws it through a, a media bed and uh, it comes out. So if the media bed becomes plugged up or it starts getting plugged up, we need to understand that that becomes a problem. It could become a safety issue as well. Um, you don't want to have any uh, fugitive emissions sending particulate out into the air. but if they come with pressure differentials or the pressure sensors, pressure in, pressure out, I can immediately start sensing if there's a degradation in the, um, in the media bed. I don't need to have any type of vibration analysis per se, I can, but if I can, if I can find out the health of the machine without adding additional cost to the structure, then that makes a lot of economic sense to us. So yeah, you, I, I guess you could say you, you want to use existing data you, you want to leverage that. And there are, there are hundreds of different use cases where you could, or thousands of different use cases where you can point out you have, most likely you already have enough existing data. For the second question, <clears throat> those that don't have much data or many sensors at all, 
yeah, talk to us. We send out engineers to on site. Um, we do a, a, an audit. For instance, I was I was at a, uh, a steel mill last week, and before that, I was at a uh, tire manufacturer, and the week before that, I was at, at a, a car manufacturing facility. What I do is I'll do an audit and try to find out what the what the problems are, what data is available, and how we can leverage that data to move forward. If they don't have it, then I give them some examples of ideas of, hey, you might want to look at this type of a, of a, uh, of a sensor located at this area on the, on the particular asset. And we basically take their hand and, and walk them through the process of upgrading or modernizing their, their fleet. Uh, and in I mean, that's a good thing to sort of dive into a little bit, actually. So in terms of selecting the asset, um, it's based on a number of factors. Maybe you could go into, I know it's a bit wider than the data question, but how we'd go about identifying the correct, the, or the assets to at least start a project with or focus a project on. Okay. Okay. Well, first we need to identify what is an asset. Some people may may think of an asset as a, as a large machine. Some people may think of it as, as a small component. We tend to take it down to the basic unit that can be measured. So for instance, uh, as an example, some people say, hey, an ID fan is an asset. Well, an ID fan is composed, composed of a screen, it's composed of a motor, it's composed of the, the fan itself, composed of a gearbox. And if there's a problem that, that arises, I want to have my people know exactly what's the problem. Is it a gearbox issue? Is it a, is it a bearing issue? Is it a motor issue? Um, and so we talk about assets as being the, the lowest common denominator of what, uh, what uh, composes a machine. Um, <clears throat> so first I have to identify what an asset is, and then I need to identify the failure modes. How does, how should this be behaving and why does it fail? For instance, um, if I have, let's say I have a, a pump or a motor, let's talk about a motor. You have a, a drive end on the bearing and you have a non-drive end. How does it fail? It, does it fail according to misalignment? Is there a problem with, uh, with uneven loads? Um, any number of different components become involved with understanding how does this asset fail and what does it look like before it fails? Then I want to understand, okay, well, if data is coming off these sensors, what data tags are available? Can I get pressure information? Can I get temperature? Can I get emissivity? Can I get torque? Can I get vibration? I, the, the huge list. And, and my recommendation would depend on what is the application. If this is an underwater pump, it might be a lot different than if it was simply uh, a pump moving a, I mean, a pump that's in, say, an RTO or something of that nature. Um, there are times when we'll actually do offline data analysis to assist in the data story. What is that machine actually telling us? We'll do that as well. So to be honest, we prefer data that indicates how healthy a machine actually is, as opposed to not all data is created equal. We want to make sure that we're getting the right data and that it is applicable to running a successful PDM program. Does that make sense? I hope that, hope that answered your question. No, it definitely did. It definitely did. Um, and, it, and again, I think it comes back to what we were saying before about maybe some companies over or underestimating, underestimating sorry, the, the quality of the data. And actually there's stuff in there that's actually there's some nuggets in there that are actually quite useful, but from what you're saying is it sometimes it just requires a little bit more of an in-depth sort of you said, offline analysis to, to right. identify that. And, and that's what we do, Niall. We, we actually, we sit down with the engineers and we talk about, okay, what is the problem? We sit down with the maintenance team. What are you seeing? Tell us about what you're experiencing. Where are your problem children? What's going on? 
and to be honest, most companies tend to overestimate the quality of their data. But the reality is, is that most data that's being generated is focused on production visibility. Uh, people want to know how many units are being made, how much time was, how much, how, how many times was this machine stopped, what was the duration of the downtime. Whereas I actually want to focus on what the machine health is, the condition monitoring. So we help them understand the, the difference of the quality of data, as well as um, how much data is too much. Is it possible to have too much data? Yeah, I don't want the raw data. I want to see, I want to extract features from that. I don't want high frequency raw data. I don't need a data point every half second. Um, I want to see a min, max, and mean, say maybe every five minutes or maybe every minute or maybe every 10 minutes, depending on the application. So to your point, um, understanding what data is available and what data would work best for the particular type of predictive maintenance you want to do on which asset, that's where the, our, our experts work with your team to help identify very clearly what works and what is, quite frankly, a waste of money. You don't want to waste money by throwing it away after something that yields no results. Our team helps, helps you identify that exactly. So, so yeah, so it's condition, really condition monitoring experts would be the people to, to identify, to look at yes. that data in more, in more yes. at that granular level. No, no, it's interesting. I mean, is there, is there a reason why companies overestimate the, the quality of their data? Is it just a lack of, I don't know, education or, I mean, it's still maybe now that companies collecting data is now a, you know, is a thing to be done, but maybe the next stage is that educational bit about what data like you just listed there, the data that's required, is it sort of an educational thing gap that's missing at the minute? Uh, perhaps I think it is a perception issue. People see data and they think that it's pretty much equivalent, which, uh, it might work for one situation and not work for another. And, and, uh, I think that one of the reasons why they overestimate the quality is simply because they just don't know better, you know, no, no judgment. I'm just, I'm just here to help them understand where, where it's going to be helpful and where it is. No, exactly. I mean, to be fair, with all the different sources and <laughs> and requirements, I mean, I'm I mean, I'm not an expert, obviously, but it, it, I can see where it can get complicated. Because like, I guess Industry 4.0 is all about collecting data, connecting your systems, and collecting that data. But then when you do it, it's like, oh no, it's not the oh, right absolutely. data. It sort it can be a bit of a minefield, especially when you've got obviously lots of other priorities, you know, to to contend with as well. Yep multiple sources, you have an IoT enabled device or, or sensor, maybe you have a gateway, some sort of an IPC, you have edge processing, factory historians, the CMMS, the EAMs, the, you have a wide range of communication protocols, even, even, you know, let's say an open API. Um, there have been times where we have some customers that are very remote and they don't have a, a network available. <laughs> I've even taken emails for, you know, a CSV file every day, just, just email me the file. Just give me the data and I'll figure out how to take care of it. But there are so many complexities to it that uh, that's really why the experts are there. That's, that's what we do. We, we help simplify and streamline all those different data sources into a single usable stream of data. That's really what we do. So from sensor to Sensei is, is where, the, um, where the art comes in. Yeah. With that sort of insight, you should be in... Um... You should be in marketing with that kind of line, that summary. But fortunately, we're recording, so we can <laughs> we can we can say I can save that one for later. Um, so, what I wanted to move on now is, and obviously you've worked with you were just saying you in the last few weeks you've traveled to different sites. But in terms of um, a successful example of a deployment 
we're using existing data, which I think we do have a really good example, which I know you're going to talk to us about. So, so yeah, if you could take us through that, that'd be really interesting. Okay, I can give it to you two, two examples. One is a, a large international aluminum mining company. Uh, 2018, we brought on about 50 different assets. Their goal was to see if since I would work. Now, to be fair, back in 2018, a lot of companies were trying to prove the concept. At this point, it's a proven concept. There's no, there's, there's no real question on whether or not it works. We have large multinational corporations, a lot of them that are using our data. It's, it's a proven concept. What isn't proven is, can we use your particular data to, to, to do well? So they brought on about 50 assets in 2018. Um, we did a full investigation process. We sent engineers to Iceland to look at their, their infrastructure. We found out that the, actually the infrastructure is very well done. Um, currently we have over a thousand assets online that we're, that we're monitoring um, automatically. <clears throat> we have plans to be expanding that. And this is all through, even through, even through COVID, we began to expand from 50 to over a thousand. A second example would be in an automotive manufacturer where we began in 2016. Uh, this company had um, spent about a year looking at all the available options for AI ML companies to do their PDM program. They were looking to reduce their, um, their unplanned downtime by about 50% year over year. And in the automotive sector, um, that's very expensive downtime. You're talking, you're talking uh, anywhere from hundreds of thousands to upwards to millions of dollars per hour of downtime. So they really had to get a handle on that. Well, we started off with only 30 assets. So they say, okay, let's go ahead and try this. So after a year, they selected us and we moved forward in 2016. By the, uh, by the beginning of three, within three months, we had already blown that number out of the water. The, the reduced unplanned downtime by 50%. We'd already blown that out of the water. We currently are in nine of their factories with over 11,000 assets that we're monitoring. And the very cool part about that is the original team of three um, of the maintenance team professionals that joined us when we started this project back in 2016, they haven't had to expand. They haven't had to hire any additional people to implement this. That's what our software does is it actually helps you understand exactly the health of the machine without having to add data scientists or um, reliability engineers, things of that nature. No, that's what we do. So that, there's another success case where, um, so one of those visits that I had uh, last week was to, uh, to bring on some additional factories from that same company. Uh, two really interesting, I guess, and, and diverse um, use cases there. Um, just on the point of not needing a large team or to, let's say, scale the team when you scale to, you know, as you scale assets and deploy more, more assets. I mean, maybe you could dive in a little bit in terms of the scalability factor. And if we want to twist it back towards the data sort of um, slant on it, how does having data affect you know, scalability possibilities, let's say, how quickly, let's say how quickly you can scale? How does having existing useful data help, help or hinder that? Um, I guess the best way to answer that would be to say, once you have the, the ability to onboard um, existing data sets from, from regular running baseline conditions of any machine, whether it's like a 30 year old machine or, or a new edge device that came on two weeks ago, uh, we can identify a, a baseline figure of that within a very short period of time, just a couple of days. 
once that's been done and I can begin monitoring that and determining any type of deviation from the norm, then it's, uh, it's a, I'll say simple, but it's not, it, it's a simplistic approach. It's very easy to scale over tens, hundreds, thousands of assets in a fairly short amount of time. Um, it, it's, it's not unusual to bring on hundreds of assets in just a couple of weeks. You know, instead of going from years, uh, talk about weeks and months rather than years and <laughs> multiple years. Um, but it, it's not, it's simplistic, but it requires work on everyone's part. Uh, this isn't a magic box where you just simply plug in data and everything pops out for you. It takes a little bit of upfront effort to understand how to onboard it. And that's what our people do is we actually help the, we help the uh, prospects, help the customers figure out what is, what is, um, worthwhile to monitor. Where's the, where's, can you expect the most ROI on the, bringing on a PDM program? And we also tell, you know, we, we'd help them to identify what their goals are. If the goal is to reduce spares or, or to um, reduce uh, unplanned downtime or to uh, increase availability, all of those are very, they have a slight nuance that's a little different. And we try to help them understand how to, how to uh, leverage the data to achieve whatever goal they're getting at. And that, that, that does include a little bit of effort. Hi. Absolutely. And that's why we have things like Omniverse and our knowledge platform to help, you know, to help with that kind of thing as well. Glad you brought that up. Uh, Omniverse, for those who don't know, Omniverse, Omniverse is a, a knowledge a database. It's a, a knowledge sharing component that we use. Um, so if we bring on someone new who wants to participate with the, uh, the PDM program, we have a, a knowledge base that teaches people how to use data, how to bring it on, how to, how to uh, onboard assets in a quick manner that is easily scalable. And that's, uh, that's just part of our system. So yeah, the other thing that we also see is there within Omniverse, we actually have a sharing platform where uh, maybe you have multiple locations or multiple um, factories around the world. So not only in, internally, but uh, you can actually share solutions for how you solved a particular problem. Oh, so it's, so it's like the community aspect, really. It's, you know, because everyone has different experiences, different, you know, different, different points of view, and they can, they can add into the conversation, I guess. So everyone's sort of continuously learning from each other. Is that a fair way to summarize? Absolutely. Well, one of the, one of the things that we noticed was that with, with, when the pandemic hit, uh, you had a lot of people taking early retirement. You lost a lot of very knowledgeable staff and it's hard to get people come back into maintenance. And so when a new person comes on board, we, we don't want to just dump them out into the factory without any support. And so what a lot of what we do with both Omniverse and inside the program, when we have alarms, we, we call them cases. Some people call them alerts or alarms. When those come up and we send out someone, we tell them where the problem is what are the likely contributors to it and how to possibly address fixing that. We actually help create a living document that is a database of, of how it would, it would help a newbie understand how to do their job most efficiently. We drive human attention to the assets and the areas precisely to where it's needed most. Yeah. And that's all through data. No. Yeah. And it's all automated, I guess, as well. That's the other, that's the beauty of it, I guess. Um, so, uh, well, you, so we, we still have our, sorry, 
Sorry, David. Oh no, I said some of our some of our customers will come in, and the first thing they do is they they'll sit down and they'll go through reams of data. They'll spend hours and hours trying to understand what the data is saying. Whereas what we'll do is we'll actually take that information and automatically direct their attention to the areas that need their attention. Uh, there's no sense in looking at data if the machine is perfectly healthy. Um, we, we, we direct the human attention exactly to where it's needed. Yeah, which I think we can all understand when you're monitoring thousands of assets, that's, that's quite important. Yeah, because it's about small, potentially smaller right, maintenance right. teams having to deal with more assets. So a tool that can point out the ones that require immediate attention is always going to, you know, it's, it's obvious really when you put it like that. But um, what, what I wanted to ask you, David, is we talked a lot about the project and importance of data, um, but which stakeholders would you say need to be involved in that process, both on the on the data side and you mentioned about bringing in maintenance people as well but are there other stakeholders needed to ensure the success of or potential success of the project sure first thing is we like to make sure that someone has a vested interest in seeing making this succeed we like to call them a champion someone who's there someone from our customer who says you know what this is my this is my project i'm going to make it work so that may be from any of the available uh, departments but we like to see someone from maintenance involved we like to see the um, reliability engineers involved if you have them if not we figure out how to how to get there uh, data scientists if they are there um, you have some some cu customers will have uh, PDM teams so we work very closely with the PDM teams to uh, magnify their efforts in a substantial way um, we like to see uh, the uh, maintenance planner if they if you happen to have one uh, help them understand how to manage projects especially if it's you maybe have one maintenance planner, but you have three different locations that are very remotely separated from each other. So we like to make sure that the maintenance planner is also very heavily involved with understanding how to understand how to understand the um, the program, how to how to direct maintenance efforts. And that's interesting because that's quite a diverse sort of list of like different departments. We talked a little bit earlier about cross departmental. So collaboration, is there, I mean, culture, we talk about a lot of Sensai as well, about the importance of it, having the, the right culture for these projects. It's not just about the technology. Um, do, but do you see, a, do you see, let's say, I don't know, like disagreements, I guess, in terms of approach from the different departments, because they're all, they all want the same goal, no doubt, but they're sort of all coming from different angles, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a lot of what we see is you have people who want to do things the old way. Now, let's just go ahead and over maintain this by doing a ton of PMs. You have uh, people who want to embrace new technology, but they don't really know what direction to go. Um, you have others who are very well versed in what predictive maintenance is and the methods to use and the tools that, they, that are at their disposal. Um, to get cross-departmental collaboration is, is a very helpful thing. Um, and I had a thought that I, I, I completely forgot what it was I was going to say with that. Um, let me see if I can recollect what I was going to mention that. It was very relevant to your point. That's okay. Well, if you, I will move on and see if, see if there's anything. No, that's okay. I mean, in we talked about de departmental, cross-departmental, but I think something we also see as well from your experience is, you know, it's a plant-by-plant -plant collaboration as well. Because, you know, some big global customers with plants around the world, essentially, I guess, if they're not connected, 
up in terms of asset, say visibility, then potentially a lot of that information can be lost as well. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's another component that we want to bring out is that visibility across not only departments, but across locations and across the entire corporate uh, structure is cap is, is uh, that ability exists depending on what the customer wants to see or who's going to be involved. This is primarily this, the system that we have is primarily uh, designed for the maintenance professional, but we also have corporate types who want to understand what's the, what's the relative health of my factories around the world. If they, they have to do costing structures or things of that nature, we have all sorts of KPIs and other reports that are available to them through, across the board, across different factories, across different departments that are automatically generated for them, uh, making their, their job a lot easier. And, and how, how challenging can it be? Cause each plant can sometimes be, it's almost like their own business. So they have their own, I guess their own way of working, their own culture in some <clears> ways also, but also on a, let's say on a data collection level in terms of IT infrastructure, they all might use different SCADA systems, different data historians. I mean, how do you overcome some of those challenges where, yes. even though they're within the same company, but actually in a lot of ways, they're, they're set, they're very much separated from each other in terms of their approach, let's say. Yep. They are. And depending on when they either acquired or built the factories, they may have different legacy systems that they're, that they're using or things of that nature. Uh, I did want to point out that was term, in terms of data, we are data agnostic. And that means that I can use any historian. I can take any sensor and process that information. So it, it can even be my competitor who's creating, who's developed a sensor that, um, that I can use. That's fine. I can use the data off there. I can use any historian, any CMMS, even internal CMMSs. Um, in terms of uh, data, I want to be data agnostic. I want to be able to use any data from any source and display it on any type of device. So whether that's a computer or a tablet or a laptop or, or even a phone. So, so in terms of data availability, um, bigger is better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually a way to extend that point is it, and we this fits into the, maybe the collaboration aspect as well, but it's also about fitting into existing workflows. Again, I was talking at an event last week to to a uh, a prospect, or let's say prospects who was at, at an event, but that's that's what they were, they were very keen to know whether you know can can you fit within our existing workflows? You're not going to try and introduce a new tool and sort of everything changes. It's about whether it's you know pushing data to a Power BI or a Tableau using brands I don't, that's all right to use i think but we get the idea those type of tools right. um but how important is that in your view as right. well it's fitting within existing structures let's say well if, not to talk in cliche but people don't like change they want to make <laughs> sure that their existing systems that work well for them are being utilized by a new tool so we want to make sure that whatever tools being developed is going to be fit perfectly into their flow we don't want to be disrupting anything in terms of how the how the um, processes are supposed to work. Uh, we're supposed to be helping people, not hindering them, right? So we want to make sure that we're um, uh, that we fit within their existing systems. Oh, the, well, keep sorry about that. Go on. No, no, if it, no. If you, it seemed like you might have remembered your point from earlier. One of my, I thought it looked like a light bulb moment there, but. <laughs> <laughs> It was, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the next question. 
No, no, that's all right. No, I'd, I'd say come back to it. Let's go back to it. It was an interesting discussion point. Well, th- this kind of goes back to when you talk about uh, this is kind of the nexus between several different points that we've already discussed. One is the siloing of data and the siloing of departments one from another. Um, or it could be factories one from another. You maybe have multiple locations. And, and that's and that's um, a problem that some of these large corporations, you know, all large corporations deal with. Um, the other thing that that we want to, that I wanted to point out is the loss of information is in, in itself as a data, it's a silo. So when we have these people that, that are retiring, it's hard to get quality people in. Uh, one of the most common things we hear is it's hard to get quality people attracted to these jobs. So if I ha- if you, you talk to any HR expert and they'll tell you that it's difficult to get a quality pr- a maintenance professional coming in. And one of the things that we've noticed is that the younger generation, uh, they don't view maintenance as a sexy job. It's just not sexy. It's not something attractive to them. But then you tell them, oh, by the way, you get to work with AI, ML every day. And suddenly you start getting people, oh, you know what? I, I changed my mind. I'd actually take, like to take a look at that job. And so we're finding that customers are telling us that they're getting much more um, interest in jobs, people applying for jobs just because they get to work with advanced technology. That really is a big draw to the younger generation to bring in new talent. So when you talk about removing data silos, a human can be one of those data silos that we want to we want to make sure that we're integrating quickly into the system. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. A really nice way because that's that's one thing I really you know slightly biased working for Sensei, but one thing I really find interesting about the system, because AI, you could very easily get wrapped up in AI and machine learning, how exciting it is. Maybe it's a great way to attract talent. You're, you're absolutely correct. But for our system, the human or the maintenance insight, the person who knows the asset, the person who sees the asset and what and knows what, what work's been carried out on the asset, et cetera, their feedback is just important. Maybe you could discuss how that works within a Sensei context. Because I think it, that's always an interesting point. Okay, sure. Anytime you're looking at AI ML as a way to do predictive maintenance, you want to make sure that the data is good. You want to make sure that the um, the, the data is relevant. So if I happen to have, uh, maybe I have just a regular planned downtime and suddenly my sensors are reading a bunch of zeros. Well, zeros going into an AI uh, component isn't very helpful. So fine, we'll have, the, we'll have the human put in, hey, here's some planned downtime or here was some unplanned downtime or something of that nature. If they begin recording, then uh, it, it begins to strengthen the algorithm substantially. In addition to that, the human understanding what's going on in terms of regime, we call it regime, maybe different products. So for instance, you may have the same robot in an automobile manufacturer that uh, and, you know, for two or three days is picking up this size motor to put it, you know, or drivetrain to put into the, the chassis. Then the, next, the rest of the week, they're picking up something that's half the size. And putting it over there. Well, those are two very separate, different uh, data requirements or maintenance requirements or demands on the system. So depending on which particular regime or product mix I'm happening to be using at the time, I want to understand what is the baseline behavior for that robot with this particular product that it's using. And so we have some of our customers are using maybe a dozen different uh, regimes and they can they can program their uh, or they can understand, have the have their attention directed to a, prob- a problem as it develops according to each individual regime that's, that it's working on. So a human needs to understand how to imp- input that with there, and we help people understand that as well. Oh, 
No, very interesting. So, and then of course, the feedback. Yeah, feedback is also important. So, for instance, if I have a, a bearing that's that's creating noise, everyone's trying to move towards this dark factory, where you know you just have one person monitoring the whole factory, and you have people in there. So, if a bearing happens to be screeching because it's it's short on grease, there's no one in there to hear it, or it might be in a noisy environment and they don't hear it. But the the AI ML program, the predictive maintenance algorithm will automatically find that. Oh, we're increasing our torque, or we have a problem with vibration, or we have a problem with the temperature, maybe of the non-drive end bearing. And so what it does is it automatically brings it to the maintenance professional's attention and it tells them what to do. And so when they go out, they'll, they'll spend maybe two hours. Go out and they'll look at it. They'll determine there's a problem. They'll put maybe three or four units of grease in there, come back and, and enter the information in. Hey, we took care of this. This is what it took place. But they, what we also want them to find out is, okay, well, wait a second. What if the bearing had failed? Would it have it would have destroyed the bearing, but it may have destroyed the bearing housing as well. Maybe a shaft would have bent. So how much downtime do I actually avoid if I had had to replace these other items? How much value did this program actually bring to me? Well, it's pretty substantial. You talk about two hour downtime to grease something because it was brought to your attention, as opposed to say sixteen hour downtime. Yeah, and there's a there's a nice link there. We're actually releasing a report on the true cost of downtime. <laughs> This week, so you can see some of those. Um, I won't reveal anything, but yeah, you across different industries, the the var the varying costs. It's not just the actual cost of stock production, but there's lots of add-on costs to that. But we're not talking about unplanned, um, you know, not talking about unplanned downtime specifically today. Maybe for another another session. So um, I see we're we're sort of coming to the end. But what we usually ask David at the end is always quite useful. Just if you've got any sort of key takeaways sort of on the subject of leveraging or get by the way that's the topic today leveraging value from existing data so just your final thoughts and a like a summary of what you think is important for everyone to take away okay. on this subject final thoughts i would say that there's more data available than most people realize and it doesn't have to be anything fancy you can get just traditional um standard data, your, your temperature, pressure, torque, um, uh, amps, things of that nature, things that have been around for decades that have already been included in the OEM. There's so much data that's already there and that most people ignore that and they think they need additional sensors or, or a lot of different new machines. Ah, leverage what you have, you know, um, put your money where it's actually going to yield a, a high ROI right to begin with. Um, there, there's so much data that's available that people aren't utilizing at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I guess it. Yeah, just to to add to that, I guess it is easy to be, not be drawn in by you know all new hardware, all new sensors, and <laughs> all this new stuff when there could be sort of gold, oh, you know, sitting story. on top of a pot. Yeah, sitting on a top pot of gold. I think that's a nice way to summarise and finish. So thank you very much. Um. So yeah. So that's all for this session, I guess. But um, it's been really really interesting subject again. Um, thank you to David um, for participating and giving your expert thoughts on this subject. Really good. And thank you, everyone, for listening, both live and on the recording afterwards. So on that note, enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Trend Detection Podcast. We host live sessions every two weeks, so if you're interested in joining the next one, 
please sign up to our email newsletter to be notified about exact dates, timings, and topics. Please subscribe via your favourite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes, and it'd mean a lot if you could let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.